0: Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah? And this morning we're in Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm not going to read through the whole chapter today, but we're going to pick out some selected verses, beginning at verse 1 through to 3, and then we'll... Go towards the end of the chapter. So Nehemiah 9, verse 1 says Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter it made, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. And now moving to verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great and mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves." And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we've just sung a song which says that your words are the words of life. And in that song, we have prayed that you would speak to us because we desperately need to see you, we need to hear you. But more than that, Lord, we need you to change us. We need your spirit to be at work in us and through us, that we might be the people you've called us to be and our purpose we might fulfil, that is, to point others to you, the great and glorious and wonderful and faithful God. So pray, Lord, now that your spirit would do that work in us, that you would have it do, that you would have him do. Lord, would you please um, help us to not just hear these words today, but Lord, through the power of your spirit to apply them to our lives. That we might walk in your truth and bring you glory, Amen. Well, you're a good-looking bunch this morning. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> wasn't expecting that. I expect that you uh, you've all spent a bit of time in front of the mirror this morning. Is that right? Oh, some of you have. Okay, well, we won't. Uh, we won't. Uh, sort of dwell on uh, those who haven't but uh, you know i think that you know many of us you know one of the things that we do when we get up in the morning is is just that isn't it we look we go and we look at ourselves in the mirror and that might be to brush our hair guys maybe to uh, to shave or to trim that beard ladies to put on your makeup and you know to do the hair and things like that to check that our appearance is okay i mean we can put a, we'd like to put a lot of effort into our, our outward appearance don't we I mean, we, uh, we want to, uh, to look our best, but we also want others to, uh, to think well of us. You know, it's so often that we judge one another on our outward appearance. But, of course, that outward appearance isn't just about what we look like. It is also about what we do as well and what we say, our behaviour. We can uh, act in uh, certain ways and say the right things, or we want to do that in order to perhaps uh, fit in, to maybe impress others. But then, you know, one of the things we can do is we can kind of put on that outward kind of show for those around about us. But but then kind of, you know, when we're on our own or in different company, we can act totally differently. That outward appearance, as important as it may be to us and those around about us, is really, though, not the most important thing about us, is it? When God commanded the prophet Samuel to go to the house of a man called Jesse and anoint the next king of Israel, Samuel was, was sure that Jesse's eldest son, Eliab, was the perfect candidate. As he looked at this man standing before him, he saw that he was, he was tall, he was handsome, he was strong. He was an Im- impressive man. And Samuel was sure that this was God's new king for his people. But yet God made it clear to Samuel that, that Samuel had judged wrongly. Because God is not impressed by outward appearance, but is more concerned about the inner man, the condition of the person's heart, their spiritual condition. Now, a mirror can reveal all sorts of external physical flaws. But we need a different kind of mirror to reveal a person's spiritual condition. Let me read to you from the book of James, chapter 1. Verses 22 to 25. In this letter he writes, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer or who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing and those verses point out the fact that the word of god is like a mirror it reveals the spiritual condition of a person by showing them not only the perfection and the, the perfection of god and the perfect law of god but it also reveals to us our own imperfections in contrast to it as we get into this passage here in Nehemiah 9 this morning, what we see here is an example of what happens when the people look into the perfect law of God and see them, their true selves in light of it. It can have a truly transformative impact on them. It can lead to not only the people seeing the, uh, the uh, severity and the, uh, the, uh, the heaviness, the weightiness of their sin, but it can then lead to genuine confession, to heartfelt repentance, and also to joyful worship. In other words, it can lead to an amazing spiritual revival. That's what we're seeing. That's what we're reading about here in this passage. We're reading about an incredible spiritual renewal and revival that took place amongst the people of God back in Nehemiah's day. Boy, isn't that something that we desperately need to see today in our own land and even in our own churches, isn't it? It is. But the thing is, if we want to see that change, it needs to begin really close to home. It needs to begin first and foremost in us. You might remember that song a number of years ago called The Man in the Mirror, a person who was looking to make a change, wanted to see the world become a better place. But the words words say if you want to make the world a better place, you need to take a look at yourself and make that change. Here in this passage we see this change in the people of God begin to take place in the previous chapter, the, the chapter that Mark preached on a few, a few weeks back in chapter 8. See, after the wall had been rebuilt in record time, thanks to God's help, the people could feel safe again and they could begin to focus on rebuilding and re-establishing other things related to their community life but especially to things related to the practice of their faith and their walks with God. Nehemiah tells us that on the first day of that particular month, the seventh month, all of the people gathered together in this large square, and a priest called Ezra read to them from God's word. And he went on, you know, this went on for almost six hours. You think my sermons are long? Six hours. And some other men who were with him, some other priests or Levites, helped explain the word of God to the people of God. And we read in verse 9 of chapter 8 that as they listened to God's word, the people became very sad and they openly cried, for they began to realise afresh just how much God loved them, but also how badly behaved they had been towards God and his commands. So what they learned from God's word was that during this time, God had commanded his people to celebrate a special feast, this Feast of Booths, which was a reminder to the people of how God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and how he'd taken care of them in their time of rebellion in the wilderness. And so before, you know, having been convicted of the word of God, before they sort of had that time of sadness and confession, they were told, first of all, they needed to be reminded of God's goodness. And so they put off their sadness until after the feast. But here in chapter 9, we see the people have now finished celebrating that particular feast, and they'd come back together again for this, this amazing gathering, this, this another church service, if you like. And it was a very significant service. In fact, the people dressed for the occasion. Of course, when we dress to come to church, I don't think we dress like this. It says now on the 24th day of this month, that is that seventh month, the people of Israel were assembled, this time with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads or ashes on their heads. The people had come dressed for mourning. They had come dressed for mourning and grieving. (laughs) Now, the service, we're told, consisted of two parts. That God's word was read and taught again for about three hours. But then for the next three hours, the people confessed their sins and they worshipped God. In other words, the people heard a sermon and then they responded to what they heard by worshipping and praying to God. Makes me wonder if we perhaps have got things ourselves a little out of balance. You know, we place a great deal of importance on the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, and so we should. But we also can give so very little time for us to really sit and meditate upon what God is teaching us through his Word. We give ourselves so little time to respond, to reflect, for the Holy Spirit to have that chance to really work in our hearts and to convict us, and to and to show us what uh, we need to, to to have changed in our lives, what the Holy Spirit wants to work on in us, because so often we we hear the Word of God preached, and then we quickly end the service with a song, and then we move out to morning tea or we go home and. You know, the the kind of message we've heard there in church all of a sudden gets lost in all of the other stuff that happens, all the discussions that go on and, and all those sorts of things. God's word quickly gets silenced by the things of this world. Of course, this is what James is talking about when he speaks about the person who looks intently into the mirror but then goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Because it's not just about hearing the word of God but in fact it's about doing the word of God. Applying it to our lives and being obedient to do what it says. You know, The people of God here in Nehemiah have had the mirror of God's word held up to them. And as they hear that word as they reflect on that word as that word is taught and explained it suddenly dawns on them the terrible state of their spiritual condition and they see that through the terrible state of their spiritual condition it has subsequently led to the terrible state of their physical condition their circumstances we see that in verses 32 to 37 You see, theirs and their ancestors' neglect of God and his ways had led them to experience the terrible circumstances in which they now found themselves in. It says in verse 37, the people's own words, we are in great distress. Perhaps that describes you and your life right now. Now, I don't want you to un- misunderstand me because what I'm not saying and what the passage is not saying is that because we may be experiencing hardship and trial in our lives right now, it is purely because of our sin. You've only got to look at a passage in the New Testament in John 9 where a man who was born blind and uh, had Jesus and his disciples encountered this particular man and being born blind in that day would have meant he would have in- been in the most um, um, poor of circumstances. He would have had a terrible uh, life of suffering, of hardship, of trial, of difficulty. And as as the disciples and Jesus approached this man, the disciples say to Jesus, Lord or Master... Who sin, this man or his parents? It kind of reflected a bit of a, an understanding in their day that if someone experienced difficulty or hardship in their life, it was because they were out of fellowship with God. It was because sin, this, this sin, had taken hold in their lives, and God was punishing them for it. Because Jesus goes on to say, actually, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but but. He's in this particular condition so that the glory of God might be revealed. And, of course, God, Jesus then heals that man to reveal the truth of God to those who had eyes and ears to see and hear. So we can see that you know, um, difficult circumstances in our lives is not necessarily the result of sin in our lives. However, it can be. And that's what this passage is saying here. The people here in Nehemiah, in a considered reflection on and, and guided by the word of God, recognized that they had rebelled against God and that in his love for his people, God had allowed them to suffer at the hands of their enemies in order that they might recognize their foolish ways and turn back to God. Look at verses 26 to 28. Says, Nevertheless, they, that is the, is, uh, the people's ancestors, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, God, and cast your law behind their back. And they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you. And you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after, they had, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. We see that kind of uh, uh, teaching reflected right the way through this passage. I wonder if whether or not the, uh, the passage that uh, the people had, had uh, read to them or part of the passage that the people had read, had read to them had been Deuteronomy 28 where God speaks about the blessings and the curses, the blessings for walking you know, rightly with God and walking in his ways and the curses that they would suffer if, they, if the people did not. But as we read through a passage like this, we've got to ask ourselves, could it be that the reason that we find ourselves in the messes that we do from time to time in our lives, could it be it because we have indeed turned our backs on God and on his good ways? Instead, we have chosen to follow our own ways instead of God's. That we instead have chased after the things of this world instead of the eternal blessings of God, and of his kingdom and righteousness. As I said, there can be a number of reasons that we experience suffering in our lives. We live in a broken and sinful world and therefore suffering is going to be a natural part of that. God often allows us to go through hardship and suffering and difficulty in order to strengthen us and build us up in our faith and and deepen our dependence upon him. But God also uses suffering and hardship in order to help us to see that we're on the wrong path, that instead we need to get back to God and to his ways, to know the blessing of his goodness and to find freedom and peace and joy in complete surrender to him. Now, that's not to say that when we are walking in perfect fellowship with God that everything's going to be a bed of roses. Because those of you who have been walking that this journey with God for many many years will know that that's not the case, is it? But it's interesting how the people describe themselves here in this passage when they know they're out of fellowship with God and they know that they've not been following God in His ways. See it in verse thirty-six. They say, "Behold, look." Consider, we are slaves. Slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And folks, when we go down that path of rebelling against God, of rejecting his ways, of doing our own things, of following, you know, the, the, pop, the, the popular way, the worldly way, we'll find that we might think that that's the path to freedom, but in actual fact God says all that's a path to is slavery. And we become a slave to these passions and these desires. In our lives. We become slaves to this stuff which we think is going to bring us happiness, but in actual fact enslave us into their ways, and we just we're just pulled along by our noses, so to speak. Jesus said in John 8 34 everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And in Romans 6, 16, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The people saw that even in the midst of the good land that God had brought them into, a land with all of its fruit that that God wanted them to enjoy and all the good gifts, the people say, behold, instead we are slaves. And folks, when we, as as human beings, even as the people of God, when we walk in those paths which is just so wonderfully presented toward, you know, presented to us. Those wonderful ways in which the devil kind of like, you know, entices us through saying, you know, this is the way you should go because this is the way of comfort and joy and freedom and and all those sorts of things. God says if you continue to go down that path, all you're going to wind up as is a person who is a slave to these things. And all of the, the, the blessings and the joys and the comforts and that sort of thing that God would have for you in walking in fellowship with him, we forsake, we forego. It's the reason we often, we so often turn our backs on God and follow our own heart's desires, is because we forget what God is like. But here in this passage, I want us to notice the emphasis on the mercy and the grace and the loving faithfulness of God in how he deals with these people. There's a number of things which, uh, a number of of the characteristics of God, of the qualities of God that are pointed out here in these verses, in this chapter. First of all, it reminds us in verses 7 and 8 that God is a choosing God. Look Look at this passage for a minute. Verses 7 and 8 says, You are the Lord. These are the people declaring, okay? You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Gergesite." And you have kept your promise, God, for you are righteous. That promise that the people are talking about there is that promise that God first made to Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis where God says, I want you to leave your home and your family and and all that that you know and go to a land that I will show you and then I'm through you, I'm going to bless you but through you I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And the people themselves there are there in the land that God has given them even, to, even at that point. Even though they're going through all the hardship, they know that God has been faithful in bringing them into that place. God had chosen them. The, the Apostle Paul writing to Ephesians reflects on that, on that aspect of God choosing us where he says this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us. God chose you. God is a choosing God. And his purpose in choosing us is that we would be holy and blameless Before him, But not only is he a choosing God, he's also a rescuing God. Verses 9 to 11 of chapter 9. And it says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. He's speaking about you know, the acts of God, the mighty hand of God in rescuing his people from slavery out of Egypt and, and taking them safely through the, uh, the waters of the Red Sea. But then in verses 26 to 28, he said, it goes on to say, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. But look, it says this, But in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. They cried out, God heard them, and God rescued them, even in the midst of their willful disobedience and rebellion. But then after rescuing them, you know the people thought oh that's that's good that's great and so they had this time of peace and in that time of peace we read in verse 28 that they did evil again before God and and that God abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had this so that the enemies had dominion over them yet it says when they turned and cried to you you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies god is a rescuing and saving God. Even when we ourselves are unfaithful, even when we ourselves are disobedient, even when we ourselves are rebellious and turn our backs on God, if we cry out to him, God is merciful. He's a rescuing God. But not only that, he's the God who leads and guides. Verses 12 and 13 of our passage says, By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And in verse nineteen to twenty, it says, "You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way; they did that in the way, and did not depart from them day by day. Nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manner from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst." God is a God who leads and guides and he has given us today his Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us according to his word. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God and helps us to understand it and apply it to our own lives. The Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He's the God who leads and guides. He's the God also also provides. In verse 15 says, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Verse 20 and 21 again says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. God is a God who provides. We can trust him. We can know that God promises to meet our needs day by day. Now, back in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in, uh, in, in Matthew 6, Jesus says to us, he says, Do not worry. Do not worry. How often do we consume ourselves with worry and anxiety and things like that about the stuff that we really, that, that, we, that we need or we, that we think we need in this world today? And Jesus says through that passage, he says, you know, he says, you know, look at the birds of the field. You know, don't, don't they have enough to eat each day? Because your heavenly Father feeds them. And, and how much more of value are you than these little birds? And what about the lilies of the field? Look at how they're clothed in all the marvellous you know, colour and splendour. Not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed as well as the, the flowers of the field. That, that, those flowers that are us—they're here one minute and gone the next. They're used for firewood the next. God says, aren't you more important than these are oh, you of little faith, God is a God who provides if we just trust him and look to him. But he's also a God who is ready to forgive, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's repeated several times through, this, uh, through these verses. And he is the God who always acts righteously and faithfully. We see that in verse 33. You know, when God sent Nehemiah back to Jerusalem with the purpose of rebuilding the wall, his intention wasn't primarily about the safety and the security of the city and its people. But it was about providing them with the environment in which they could live as the faithful people of God in order to show the surrounding nations what it was like to live in relationship with such a good and loving and holy God that those nations themselves might come to know him and to worship him too. And for us today, when God first, if you're a follower of Jesus, when God first worked in your life, to bring you to that understanding of your sin and that need to confess that sin and repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Saviour and as your Lord. God's intention for you, even then, was not for you to just have your sins forgiven and to have this kind of eternal insurance policy, but to know the blessing of being a part of his family to know and experience his grace and love and mercy and provision, yes, but with the purpose in that so that your life might point others to this good and gracious and merciful God. That through you, God might reveal his glory and his majesty, his righteousness and his holiness, his goodness and his grace. And he gave you his Holy Spirit to help you in this. And so, folks, when we instead walk in sin, rather than in the footsteps of Jesus, we not only cause ourselves harm, but what we also do is we effectively dim the light of God within us, that light that God would want to use to lead others out of the spiritual darkness that they find themselves in. Now, that's a responsibility and a half, isn't it? That is God's purpose, that you might be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, the good news, the good news for us Because when we consider what God has called us to, the kind of life that God wants us to live, we can see in ourselves just how far short we fall, don't we? Just how bad we are at doing that. But the good news is this, that through Christ, those sins have been paid for and forgiven so that our failure is not the end of the story. Because God's grace will always win out over our failure and our sin. God himself does not write us off. Even though we might write ourselves off and others might write us off, God does not. Just as he didn't forsake his disobedient people here in this passage... God himself has opened up the way for forgiveness through confession and repentance. And through faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross, we can rejoice. Listen to Romans three twenty three to 26. It says, For all have sinned. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we are justified by his grace. That grace came as a gift through the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. This Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, one who would be the one who would bear our penalty the rightful penalty that we deserve for our sin, God put Jesus forward as the one who would bear that punishment on our behalf in order to take the full wrath of God upon himself for our sin, to turn away God's wrath from us. And that is something which we can receive by faith. And Paul continues to write, this he did this in order to show god's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins see back in this old testament day jesus hadn't died yet but god was able to be faithful to these people and forgive them their sin because god was looking forward to the time when jesus would die on the cross Jesus dying was to show God's righteousness at his perfect right time so that God might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we look at ourselves this morning in light of, you know, God's words. We we really are honest with ourselves this morning. We can put ourselves very much in the shoes of these Israelites this morning and know that very, you know, very surely, very assuredly in our hearts that we ourselves have been just like these people in their rebellion and their rejection and their walking away from God, in their unfaithfulness to him. We can, be, we can see that in our, in our own lives, in our own hearts. But what we also are, it is imperative for us to see is the fact that God himself in his faithfulness and his mercy and his goodness, has provided the means for which all of our failures can be blotted completely out of our books. And that is why we should stand and declare with the Levites in this passage this morning in verse, in verse 5, where they say this, Stand up! Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, Lord, which exalted, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. That should be the cry of our hearts this morning. Because of who God is. In the midst of our rebellion and our rejection of him, God has been faithful. Although we have acted wickedly, he always acts righteously and deals with us faithfully. Isn't that a reason to say thank you and praise you, most glorious and gracious God? His goodness, yes, should cause us to to take a good look at ourselves. And like those first hearers of the, uh, the gospel preached in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection where, G- where Peter preached that amazing gospel and he, and he said to the people, you, you're the ones who put Jesus to death on that cross. You killed the Messiah. You see, those people, they were cut to the heart by that. And, folks, the reality for every single one of us should be this, that when, in, when we contemplate our sin, we ourselves should be so deeply cut to the heart because of it. That our sin is nothing to be trifled with. It is nothing to trivialise. I remember when our girls were little, You know, we uh, used to tell them when they went out in the yard, you know, during summer, I said, you know, you need to be careful out there because, you know, the mozzies are pretty bad and that sort of stuff, so we put mozzie repellent and things on them. And they, you know, they'd get mozzie bites and stuff like that. A mozzie bite's one thing, but one of the other hazards we had around our house at that time was redback spiders... And I said, whenever you're playing with your toys or putting your shoes on, you first check and make sure there's none of these spiders in there. Folks, sadly today for us as Christians, we treat sin more like a mozzie bite rather than a redback spider bite. But God says to us, even in the midst of your failure and sin, If you are willing to confess and repent, to turn back to me, God says, I forgive, I embrace, I I renew and restore. I don't know where you stand with God this morning. I don't know. You know what's going on in your life right now, what sins perhaps you are struggling with or dealing with, perhaps this passage very, very much, very aptly describes you and your life right now that you know deep down in your heart that the reason that you're going through all of this hardship in, lo- in your life at the moment is because God's trying to get your attention. Because you know you're walking far from him and the mess that you're experiencing right now is because this sin has got such a hold on you that you are, sl- you are a slave to it and to its consequences. God wants to say to us this morning, I want to release you from that. I want to free you from that. If you'll just put trust in me. That might not be your circumstances right now, but I guarantee at some point in time they, might, they, they probably will be. And we're going to come around the communion table here now. I'm going to invite the stewards to come forward. I think it's really fitting that we come around this table this morning. Because it speaks of two things. It speaks first of the seriousness of our sin. That God couldn't just turn a blind eye to it. But that it would cost the life of God's dearly begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It would cost him his life in order to pay for it, in order to make atonement for our sins. And so we should consider sin to be serious, to be deadly. But this table also speaks of the grace and mercy of God, that through the body and blood of Jesus, given for us, there on the cross at Calvary, that our sins can be forgiven, that we can receive forgiveness and cleansing for our sins. And that we can walk in that newness of life with God, so I invite you as we partake of these elements this morning, I want you to to take of the bread, whether it be the the bread in the bowls by the way is just normal bread the bread in the little cups on the uh, communion on the uh, the the, uh, the cup trays is actually the gluten free bread if you 're gluten free as we partake of that bread this morning, I want you to just reflect, to take this time to reflect. You know, we we're just saying before about the time, we you know, we hear God's word and we don't give ourselves opportunity to reflect enough. Here is that opportunity now for you to perhaps do that, do that business with God, to say, Lord, I know that I've walked so far away from you. I know that my life is not perfect. And for you to confess your sin and to repent of it. That's the that's the the only way forward in terms of our sin is to confess it, to recognize it, or to admit our wrong, and then to repent of it, to decide we don't want to we don't want to walk that way anymore. We want to we want to walk God's way. That's what repentance means. To confess and to repent. To say to God, sorry. That then as you take that bread to receive a fresh that new life in Jesus. That life which he offers. That cleansed life. So take the bread and eat of it. But the, the cup I want you to hold that we might drink that together in fellowship today. Reminding us afresh that yes, the blood, the, the blood of Jesus will spill for our sin. That God has saved us. But that God has saved us and called us into community that we might actually help one another in this living for god today because you can't do it on your own we need one another we need one another we need to be accountable to one another we need the encouragement of one another we need the the getting alongside of one another in this life because it's hard and we need others to speak the truth of the word of god into our lives to help us to see the sin in our lives so that we might confess it and repent of it afresh so take, we're going to hold the cup, drink it together in, in, in light of that, in fellowship together in Jesus Christ this morning. Let me pass out the elements. Isn't it wonderful to know that all of our guilt and shame because of our sin is removed in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection? I don't know how you, as I said, I don't know where you're at at the moment, I don't know if you, this morning, you you felt that guilt and that shame very, very keenly because of your sin. But the good news of Jesus is that he will take that lift, he will lift that shame and guilt from you to say that I have died for that. I've died for all the things that you have done wrong. And in place of that, I give you my righteousness that you can stand in right fellowship with God right here, right now. That's something to celebrate. That should be something that just so lifts our hearts lifts them to worship in god so let us worship him now as we drink together from this cup and give thanks to him for his salvation in jesus let us drink gracious god there is no god like you every other religion in this world today is based around doing. We need to measure up. We need to do this, do that. We need to, to, to do all this stuff in order to earn your approval and that sort of thing. But God, the Christian faith, the gospel, is about the fact that it's not about us doing, but about what Jesus has done. And we thank you that on our spiritual accounts, as we put our faith in Jesus, as we confess and repent of our sin, you write on there paid in full thank you lord jesus help us in light of this good news this week to walk in thankfulness and gratitude for that and to seek to want to love you more because you are indeed that good and merciful and gracious god amen if you'd like to pass your cups into the center aisles The stewards will come forward and collect that and our team's gonna come and lead us in our last song. Thank you.
1: Everyone needs compassion. Love that's never failing. Everyone needs the kindness of a saviour. Let's reflect on that and worship our great God as we sing together. Everyone needs compassion, love that's never failing, let mercy fall on me, everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a saviour. Savior, he can move My God is mighty to save. do you believe that he is indeed mighty to save and aren't you glad he is so now as you go the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all amen thanks for joining with us today head out to the side for some fellowship together and listen out for when the members meeting starts there'll be a yell for you